Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, Literally Heather. Ah, good morning, me familia. I am happy to be with you this morning, and I never like to wish my summers with my kids away, but I will happy be happy for my schedule to be a little more consistent so that I can put out a morning show every day again. That said, guess what Palmetto State Armory has in store for you guys? A Days of Summer Clearance Sale, and who doesn't love that? Hit that link in the show description to peruse deals on rifles, lower kits, optics, and ammo, and I promise you will not be disappointed. I talked about this on Patriots and Petticoat Sunday night just briefly. Um, If you haven't subscribed to that YouTube channel, you should totally do so so you can catch our live stream on Sunday nights at 8.30 Eastern Time, but I thought that those of you who listen here would appreciate it as well. In one of the most chilling developments in our history, the left has come to embrace the authoritarian language and logic of segregationists in calling for defiance and radical measures against the Supreme Court. In a recent open letter, Harvard Law Professor Mark Tushnet and San Francisco State University political scientist Aaron Belkin called upon Joe Biden to defy rulings of the Supreme Court that he considers mistaken in the name of popular constitutionalism. Thus, in light of the court's bar on the use of race in college admissions, they argue that Biden should just continue to follow his own constitutional interpretation. Well, his family violates tax law, federal gun laws, bribery and extortion laws. Why not violate SCOTUS rulings too? It would be par for the course for their family. The use of affirmative action case, though, is ironic because polls have consistently shown that the majority of the public does not support the use of race in college admissions. Indeed, even in the most liberal states, such as California, voters have repeatedly rejected affirmative action in college admissions. Polls further show that a majority support the Supreme Court's recent decisions. So, despite referenda and polls showing majority support for barring race and admissions, academics are pushing to impose their own values regardless of the views of the public or of the courts. Tushnet and Belkin cite with approval Biden's declaration that this is, quote, not a normal Supreme Court. Biden's view of normalcy appears to be a court that agrees with his fluid view of constitutional law, by which he can forgive roughly half a trillion dollars in loans or impose a national eviction moratorium without a vote of Congress. Other commentators and academics have gone from implied to open contempt for our constitutional norms. Let me tell you some of them. Georgetown University Law Professor Rosa Brooks said and was celebrated for her appearance on MSNBC's The Readout after declaring that Americans are slaves 
to the U.S. Constitution, and that the Constitution itself is now the problem for our country. MSNBC commentator Ellie Meistel, or Mistel, I'm not sure how you say her name, called the U.S. Constitution trash. Oh, that's why I don't know her name, because she's an idiot. And argued that tuition itself isn't, I apologize, and argued that we should simply just dump it. Uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has questioned the need for a Supreme Court. Media, law professors, politicians, the only people still expecting the government to adhere to the Constitution are the people. In a New York Times column, the Constitution is broken and should not be reclaimed. Law professors Ryan Dofler of Harvard and Samuel Moyne of Yale called for the Constitution to be radically altered, to reclaim America from constitutionalism. So the danger is now constitutionalism, as opposed to what Tushnet and Belkin call popular constitutionalism. In other words, and in case you're not paying attention, communism is alive and well. The framers saw the Supreme Court as playing a counter-majoritarian role when it is necessary to protect individual rights and constitutional norms. The alternative is what the framers viewed as a tyranny of the majority, where the popularity, rather than the principle, prevails. For that reason, the court has often stood with the least popular in our society, and since Marbury versus Madison, has had the final word on what the Constitution means. What is most striking about these professors is how they continue to claim they are defenders of democracy, yet seek to use unilateral executive authority to defy the courts and, in cases like the tuition forgiveness and affirmative action, the majority of the public. They remain the privileged elite of academia, declaring their values as transcending both constitutional and democratic processes. Meanwhile, the Yuzumis of the world are out here laughing and ungovernable, just waiting. That barrier of the rule of law that they think needs to be torn down is the only thing protecting them from us. It appears they should take a look at history to be reminded of that. Start looking around 1775, if you will. The IRS has announced a major, yet common sense, policy change that will put an end to most unannounced agent visits to taxpayers' homes, mostly because of security concerns. The move, effective immediately, reverses decades of policy that saw IRS revenue officers knocking on the door of taxpayers' homes without forewarning in attempts to resolve delinquent tax matters. The reason for the change, according to a statement by the agency, is to lower the risk that anxiety-provoking surprise home visits by tax enforcement agents could spiral out of control, posing a hazard to both taxpayers and agency field officers. That whole Sons of Liberty vibe wasn't appealing to them, apparently. Experience shows that unannounced door knocks at homes and businesses were high-risk encounters 
with agents routinely facing hazards and uncertainty when making surprise visits. According to the IRS, unannounced visits also created what they call public confusion and posed risks to taxpayer safety. These visits created extra anxiety for taxpayers already wary of potential scam artists. Uh, That was said by IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel in a statement, at the time, the uncertainty around what IRS employees faced when visiting these homes created stress for them as well. I'm sure they were so stressed. This is the right thing to do and the right time to end it. Part of the problem, according to the IRS, is that there's been a rise in recent years of scam artists posing as IRS agents, creating confusion for both taxpayers and local law enforcement. Change comes amid the IRS's recent rollout of a new strategic operating plan, which seeks, in part, to put a kinder face on the tax enforcement agency. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? A kinder face? Stop stealing our hard-earned money and I feel like you won't even have to worry about your face anymore. You can just cease to exist and it'll all be good, fam. The Union for Tax Agents, of course, there's a a Union for Thieves. The National Treasury Employees Union, also known as NTEU, praised the decision to shift policy regarding unannounced door knocks. We applaud Commissioner Werfel's quick action after hearing the safety concerns raised by NTEU leaders and IRS field collection employees who faced dangerous situations that put their safety at risk. Tony Reardon, president of the NTEU, said in a statement he blamed false inflammatory rhetoric about the agency and its workforce for adding to the danger facing field agents. However, don't worry. The agency stated they will still be there will still be extremely limited situations in which unannounced visits will still occur. These rare instances include service of summonses, subpoenas, and also sensitive enforcement activities involving seizure of assets, especially those at risk of being placed beyond the reach of the government. The IRS said in a statement, just reading that little section out loud makes me sick to my stomach. Enforcement activities involving seizure of assets. Like, do you mean putting families out of their homes because they've fallen on hard times due to your shitty policies? Is that what you mean by seizure of assets? Hitting a little close to home, I thought I'd share this story with you guys. Nurses in Kentucky have been forced to undergo, quote, check notes, implicit bias training to indoctrinate them with concepts such as white people being inherently racist. Those who do not fulfill the course were reportedly being threatened with non-renewal of their licenses. The Kentucky Board of Nursing mandated an implicit bias course for nurses in January last year, which was reported at the time in the Washington Examiner. The rules required nurses who were actively licensed as of July of 2022 
to complete the course by July 1st of 2023. The course seeks to address the impact of historical racism and other forms of invidious discrimination on the provision of health care, as well as the actions that can be taken to reduce such alleged bias. The course essentially portrays white people as oppressors. One of the diagrams presented during the training is of overt racism and covert racism. Apparently, covert racism includes the denial of white privilege, white silence, denying institutional racism, weaponizing whiteness, Eurocentric school curricula, excusing or white-splaining racism, claiming reverse racism, fetishizing people of color, among other things. Examples of overt racism include public harassment of persons of color speaking other than English, a white woman asking a black woman where she is from is presented as an act of covert racism. The course requirement came amid the renewal period of nursing licenses. Now, according to the Washington Examiner, KBN threatened nurses with discipline, quote unquote, in case they failed to complete the course. In an interview with the outlet, Laura Morgan, who uh, is a nurse and a program manager at the medical advocacy Do No Harm, said that KBN informed the term discipline could mean non-renewal of licenses. However, the organization denied threatening nurses with such actions, according to the outlet. It insisted that the course is required by regulation, considered and passed by a Kentucky General Assembly committee, and that failure to do it could result in civil sanction or discipline. I'm sure they'd never threaten such a thing. You'd think you just came out of a major medical event where jobs and licenses of nurses were threatened if they didn't inject themselves with vial after vial of heart poison. The implicit bias course was developed by the Kentucky Nurses Association, and in an interview with WKMS radio station in May, KNA's CEO Delanor Manson blamed the shortage of nurses due to the alleged discrimination against nurses of color. Manson is the first black individual to head the KNA in its 117-year-old history. According to the organization, roughly 92% of nurses in Kentucky are white, 4% are black, and 1% are Hispanic, while the overall population in the state has 9% blacks and 5% Hispanics. Talking about the KNA course, Rebecca Wall, who is a nurse with four decades of experience, said that the Kentucky Board of Nursing pretty much said we're all guilty of being racist and we need to examine the way we take care of patients and change our behaviors because we are giving substandard care. I had to make a decision at that point as to whether or not I was going to bite the bullet and agree with the assumption that they had or Uh, that they had that we were all racist, Wall said. She ended up completing the course. It's offensive to be told, if you don't do this course, you're out after 40 years. 
a whole career spent in the field because you don't agree to the one dogma, you're done, you're valueless, you're not worth it anymore. The Kentucky Board of Nursing's move to mandate implicit bias training is part of a wider nationwide effort to push diversity, equity, and inclusion among corporations, academic institutions, and other organizations. For instance, tech firms like Google publicly chart the Black and Latino employees they have hired. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is looking to hand out awards to more films of color. Wells Fargo provides cheaper loans to firms that meet certain racial quotas. Lockheed Martin asks its executives to, quote, deconstruct their white male privilege. In universities, students are made to take DEI-prescribed courses in college, with professors expected to swear oaths to the DEI dogma. This month, a former principal of the Toronto School District Board, Toronto District School Board, uh, took his own life after being subjected to diversity training sessions. Following the training, the professor ended up getting accused of white supremacy and was bullied. Despite all attempts to push diversity into corporations, such hires are the ones that have been terminated at higher rates in recent times. Attrition rates for DEI roles at over 600 companies have laid off workers since late 2020 outpaced that of non-DEI roles. Uh, That is a report from Revolio Labs. Revolio's analysis revealed that the churn rate for DEI-related roles at the 600 firms was 33% compared to only 21% for non-DEI positions. Hold on. Are you saying that hiring the most qualified person for the position is a more successful approach than hiring based off irrelevant metrics? Say it isn't so. Speaking of heart poison, cases of myocarditis soared among U.S. service members in 2021 after the COVID-19 vaccines were rolled out, a top Pentagon official has confirmed. There were 275 cases of myocarditis in 2021, which is a 151% spike from the annual average from 2016 to 2020. The Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, who confirmed the data, revealed by a whistleblower earlier this year. Senator Ron Johnson, who has been investigating problems with the database, questioned how the military came up with the figures. It's unclear whether or how it accounted for service members who had a prior COVID infection and received a COVID vaccine. Department of Defense officials did not respond to a request for comment. Color me shocked. Dr. Peter McCullough, who is a cardiologist and president of the McCullough Foundation, looked at the newly disclosed data. The large increase in myocarditis cases in our military in 2021 was most likely due to ill-advised COVID-19 vaccination, he told. Well, he was pointing to a study from Israel that found no increase of myocarditis in COVID-19 patients. 
Some other papers have found COVID-19 vaccines increase the risk of myocarditis. COVID-19 has been linked elsewhere to myocarditis. Myocarditis, so hard to say fast. Although the vaccines have never prevented infection and have become increasingly ineffective against it. Military officials have struggled to provide accurate data on 2021 diagnoses, uh, similar to their inability to provide a budget. Whistleblowers revealed in 2021 that myocarditis, as reflected in in the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database, has soared to 2,868% higher than the average from 2016 to 2020. They downloaded the data in August of 2021. The number of 2021 myocarditis diagnoses, though, had plummeted from 1239 to 263. When the data was downloaded later, prompting concerns of manipulation, Military officials said they reviewed the data and found it was faulty. They said the data for the years 2016 to 2020 were corrupted. So four years of corrupted data during a database maintenance process, which resulted in the display of only 10% of the actual medical encounters for that time period. Sure it was. We totally believe you. Do y'all remember Carly Russell? Surely you do, because this just happened recently. But to refresh your memory, she disappeared on the night of July 13th, shortly after she called 911 to report a sighting to a toddler wearing a t-shirt and a diaper walking barefoot down 459 in Hoover, Alabama. She initially told police she would stay at the scene, but then disappeared off the grid. And she was heard screaming during a bizarre call to her sister-in-law. Well, Carly admitted yesterday that she wasn't abducted earlier this month. As she apologized for the bizarre hoax that sparked a massive two-day search, there was no kidnapping. My client did not see a baby. Russell's attorney, Emery Anthony, wrote in a statement read at a press conference on Monday. My client did not leave the Hoover area. My client apologizes for her actions to this community. Carly asks for your forgiveness and prayers. After a two-day search, the Alabama nursing student showed up at her parents' door on July 15th. She was taken to a hospital where she was treated and released. She agreed to one police interview, but subsequently stopped cooperating with the investigation. Jersey's said Monday it's unclear where Russell actually was for the 49 hours that she was reported missing. No criminal charges have been filed at this time. After her return, investigators found that Russell Googled the film Taken, which stars Liam Neeson, as a CIA agent racing to save his daughter from abductors the day she disappeared. Searches also revealed that Russell looked up one-way tickets from Birmingham to Nashville, and whether victims have to pay for Amber Alerts. Sounds a bit preemptive to me. Or premeditated, I should say, not preemptive. Uh, Russell, however, doubled down on her story and initially told police that she was abducted from the side of the road 
by a white man with orange hair. The obvious flaws in the would-be victim's narrative were seemingly confirmed when she was fired from the Woodhouse Spa in Birmingham, and her boyfriend deleted all evidence of her from his social media. We've been a little pissed off, mainly because so many people took so much time out to search. Uh, that was the Woodhouse owner, Stuart Rome, that told the Post last week of Russell's co-workers' reaction to her traumatic disappearance and reappearing act. Russell stole a robe and toilet paper from the spa just a few hours before she went missing. She then stopped at a local Target store for snacks, which were not found in her vehicle after she vanished. Here's where it gets interesting to me. The only thing I can say is I want everyone to stop bullying her. I know what it seems like she what she did. Just stop bullying on social media, Russell's boyfriend, Tom, Tamar Latrell Simmons, who previously defended her against detractors, said. Think about her mental health. She doesn't deserve that. She doesn't. Nobody deserves to be cyberbullied. On Monday... Crime Stoppers of Metro Alabama revealed that it would not refund those who contributed to the $63,378 during the search for Russell. This investigation is still ongoing, and accordingly, there is no basis to refund any contributions at this time. Furthermore, the Hoover Police Department has not requested for any donor contributions to be released or refunded. Bob Copas, the organization's executive director, told Alabama.com or AL.com last week that some larger contributions had already been returned, the $25,000 put up by the Birmingham Board of Realtors and the $20,000 offered by an anonymous donor were refunded. The outlet said... In an emotional interview with NBC News last week, Russell's parents said their daughter fought for her life during her alleged ordeal and that she was not in a good state when she returned home. Thus far, Russell's parents are not being charged in connection with their daughter's hoax. I have as many questions from this scenario as I did during the Althea Bernstein ordeal. Okay. So I know this is a novel concept, apparently, but we are a sovereign nation, or at least we're supposed to be. Greg Abbott agrees with me. He gets it. Uh, Joe Biden and attorney Vanita Gupta do not, it would seem. The Department of Justice slapped Texas with a lawsuit yesterday over the floating border barrier that the state erected on the Rio Grande. Rio Grande, Rio Grande, whatever ratcheting up the White House's war with Governor Greg Abbott. Federal prosecutors said Abbott must remove the 1,000-foot-long barrier of buoys that was strung across the river earlier this month to thwart illegal immigrants, saying it was constructed without federal authorization, according to a civil complaint filed in Austin Federal Court. Ask yourself one question. Why would the President of the United States be fighting to remove barriers to entry to the country on a river. 
Is that a normal way for a legal person to enter the country? We allege that Texas has flouted federal law by installing a barrier in the Rio Grande without obtaining the required federal authorization, Vanita Gupta said in a statement. This floating barrier poses threats to navigation and public safety and presents humanitarian concerns. The floating barrier poses a larger threat, they say, than the people being permitted to come into the country um, un, unfettered. <laughs> uh, additionally, the presence of the floating barrier has prompted diplomatic protests by Mexico and risks damaging U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> Trust me. Those buoys in the water couldn't do an ounce more damage than Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Antony Blinken have done to foreign policy. Todd Kim, Assistant Attorney General of the Department's Environment and Natural Resources Division, which filed the complaint, nobody's surprised by that either, added the Rivers and Harbors Act is clear in prohibiting the placement of any unauthorized barriers or obstructions in the Rio Grande and other navigable waters of the United States. We intend to seek the appropriate legal remedies, including the removal of such such obstructions in the Rio Grande. The lawsuit also states Abbott did not request authority from the Army Corps of Engineers before beginning construction, violating the Rivers and Harbors Act. Abbott anticipated this lawsuit in a letter he sent to Joe Biden earlier on Monday when he warned that the state believes it has a constitutional authority to build the barriers because the president refuses to enforce federal immigration laws. If you truly care about human life, you must begin enforcing federal immigration laws, Abbott said. By doing so, you can help me Stop migrants from wagering their lives in the waters of the Rio Grande River. We aren't asking for permission. Abbott said earlier this year of his efforts to secure the border. A man after my own heart. Free men do not need permission from the government. Uh, Even though Abbott is part of the government, like I get it. Don't come after me. Uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents have encountered more than 1.7 million migrants crossing the southern border in fiscal year 2023 alone. At least 748 migrants died trying to cross illegally into the United States in 2022, according to the Department of Homeland Security. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. As always, I appreciate you guys joining me today. If you enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, go to iTunes, leave a comment, even if it's just, hey, what's up? Um, It helps me tremendously go up in the numbers. And don't forget to stop by that link in the description for your deals at Palmetto State Armory. 
I hope you guys have a wonderful evening and I will be back tomorrow. Take care. Have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.